name is Forrest Coleman. I'm a postdoc in Stephen Smith's lab in the Department of Molecular and Cellular Physiology here at Stanford, and welcome to NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. This week, our guest is Ryan Watts, the director of the Department of Neuroscience at Genentech and former Stanford graduate student. Thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Watts. I'm very excited to speak with you. Thank you. Could you first tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and when you decided you wanted to become a scientist? Yeah, so I, I grew up in the West. I grew up in Salt Lake City. Um, I'm one of seven children, the youngest, so I was uh, harassed a lot as a child, having many older brothers, actually five older brothers and older sister. And um, you know, I didn't grow up in a family that was really versed in science. A lot of, uh, a lot of diversity in my family in terms of career paths. And it wasn't really until high school where I met... Uh, chemistry teacher that I think really changed the course of my career. That was probably the most influential experience as a, as a high school student. There was a, a chemistry teacher in AP chemistry that I think really set the path. I became really interested in chemistry, although I spent probably 95% of my time skiing and fly fishing and, you know, playing sports and, but realized there was this whole other world. What did the high school chemistry teacher do in chemistry class that, that enthralled you so much? Yeah, I think, you know, it must have been that I was intrinsically wired to like chemistry <laughs> because I have to, you know, frankly, the chemistry teacher wasn't necessarily really liked by everyone, but for some reason, it, the concepts of, at the time, sort of inorganic chemistry rung true for me and the, and probably the symmetry in chemistry and the principles of chemistry just were really compelling as a young high school student. I also enjoyed mathematics and, and, and physics, but, but he was, he was an excellent teacher. And, you know, I think pretty captivating in how chemistry has really changed the world and what's happened in the, in the last several centuries in terms of the history of chemistry. And, and so I thought, actually, I thought I was going to become a chemist until I went to the University of Utah and, and uh, met a chemist um, academic who said, whatever you do, don't become a chemist. <laughs> and and uh, I didn't really get what he was saying. And, and so I, you know, sort of enrolled in, in organic chemistry. And But I, I guess I didn't like organic chemistry as much as I had thought I would. And, and it was really my first cell biology, genetics, and biochemistry class at the university level was amazing. Because now you're applying chemistry to questions of biology. And I realized that that was the future. And I think what the chemist was trying to tell me is that, you know, this field is advancing, but it's much more mature where the, the world of biochemistry and biology and genetics is, is still really new and, and really fresh. And so, you know, I, that was basically the beginning. And I started in a, in a fly lab at the University of Utah, spending hours sorting virgins, setting up crosses, and, you know, making discoveries as an undergraduate, which I found also pretty compelling. So, as I mentioned earlier, you, you came here to Stanford to do your graduate work, where you worked in uh, Lee Chan Lu's lab, where you studied the cellular and molecular mechanisms underlying axon pruning in the Drosophila mushroom body. And in 2003, you published a paper showing that axons of at least one type of neuron, the Drosophila quote-unquote gamma neuron, undergo pruning through a local degeneration mechanism that is dependent upon the ubiquitin proteasome system. Could you talk a little bit about what people thought the mechanism of axon pruning was before your work came out and go into a little more detail about what you found? It's amazing how far we've come since 2003, which you know, really isn't that long ago. And I, I look back at that paper and it's, it's really simple. 
a first the first part of the paper is is just observational and i think lee chin who you know is again one of those sort of figures in my life who's really helped um shape my my career lee chin and i uh, sat down and and just we we asked a simple question is what's the cellular mechanism how do these gamma neurons undergo remodeling during metamorphosis and you know you could have you could predict that they could selectively retract their connections, basically prune their synapses and retract sort of in an axon guidance sort of way, or they could undergo a degenerative mechanism. And at the time, it just wasn't known. And so that was really the, I think, one, that in parallel with two or three other projects in Lee Chin's lab, um, that was a simple question we could address just doing a time course, looking at what happens to the axons uh, over time. This is not live imaging. This is basically just picking time points in. Mm and you know taking pupa and dissecting out brains and, and i think what was striking was was two things it was definitely a degenerative mechanism so these axons were fragmenting and and the the second thing was how how striking the specificity was so they would degenerate to a particular point in the axon and that was it so and it was only about half of the axon link it was at the end of the peduncle and we actually still have no idea why that's cellular specificity. We don't know why it's selected that just the two branches will degenerate and then the axon remains intact. And then it sprouts a growth cone and grows back only in one direction. And so, you know, for us, it was, it was just asking a simple question and doing, I think what, you know, now is not as appreciated, just observational biology. You know, some of the great discoveries are, are simple observations. And that's, that's how that project started. What is, I think, even now almost i don't want to say laughable but you know thinking back at the time we had no idea what the molecular mechanisms were and so we showed that you know the ubiquitin proteasome system is required for this process but it's pretty much required for all cellular events mm -hmm. but we came across it by overexpressing the ubiquitin protease um, and it's still not exactly clear what the e3 ligase is or the substrate is but um, that was in an overexpression screen. And then we just linked basically the cellular observations with the molecular observations. And, you know, I, I selected that particular field because nothing was known. So it was easy to do all the literature reading because there wasn't much literature. To read. <laughs> and so I didn't have to have a vast knowledge of this field. We could just start off with um, asking some basic questions. And I think that that approach is... Um, kind of been, you know, what's guided me even at Genentech for the last um, 10 years is trying to address, you know, tough questions that maybe a lot of people are not, you know, so uh, interested in addressing. So as you just alluded to, after you finished your PhD, you decided to leave academia and immediately started your own lab at Genentech. Is that right? That's correct. And in fact, I had interviewed for a postdoc position on the East Coast and I was set up ready to go to the East Coast. Um, but then my wife, and at the time we had, you know, we have two children. Uh, we thought more about them, like, do I really want to go to, you know, do this postdoc? And I, at Stanford, in addition to Lee Chin and other great professors, I, uh, you know, became good friends with Mark Tessie Levine, who had left to Genentech about six months prior to, to me joining Genentech. And so I contacted Mark and I was very lucky that there was just a unique opportunity at Genentech in studying blood vessels, which I knew nothing about because I'd only worked in flies and flies, unfortunately, don't have your typical vascular system, but the axon guidance molecules in blood vessel formation 
and in tumor angiogenesis, but also in axon regeneration. And so I remember having been lined up for a postdoc, but then changed my mind and, and met with Mark and was able to basically interview at, at Genentech uh, and get a position here. And in fact, I left it to Genentech and then about a month later, came back to Stanford to defend my thesis. So it was uh, pretty rapid and started a project uh, right away here. But the night that I was leaving Lee Chin's lab, he came back to my bench and said, are you really sure you want to go to industry? Because he, he knew how much I you know, really loved science and how, especially in Lee Chin's lab, got very interested in answering basic scientific questions. And, you know, looking back, that was probably the most impactful and it was by far hands down the most important and the right decision to make was to come here to Genentech. So what advice would you give to graduate students and postdocs listening who might be considering a, a similar career path? I mean, at the surface, what you just said sounded kind of remarkable. You, you started the lab studying something you knew nothing about. In fact, I don't think it would ever happen again. <laughs> you know, I know it hasn't happened in uh, people that, that I've necessarily hired, but I think that maybe the principle is just, you know, seek out opportunities. And then when you have that opportunity to, to really go after it, I mean, that's a generic answer. But for me, I, I guess what I realized that what's most stimulating is just the challenge. And you know, I've been very much exposed at, at Genentech to the business side of biotech, in addition to the scientific side. And, you know, hands down, it's really the science that is most exciting and, and, and compelling. So just pursuing something with passion and being flexible. You know, I actually look back now at the 10 years that my lab has been in existence at Genentech, and we've really spanned, you know, from oncology to axon regeneration to degeneration to the blood-brain barrier and, you know, just trying to identify important questions, but being interested in any question and then addressing it, you know, in a hardcore molecular, cellular, genetic way. If you're really obsessed with one question, then that's not so easy. But if you really like science and, and, and the challenge, then you can be flexible. So your lab at Genentech, as you uh, mentioned, studies a wide variety of things, but maybe two uh, broad areas, the, uh, the establishment uh, and maintenance of the blood-brain barrier and figuring out the molecular mechanisms behind uh, Alzheimer's disease. And in 2011, you were able to bring these two areas together when your lab described a new high affinity antibody directed against an enzyme involved in the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's called beta secretase, and while developing a new strategy for increasing the amount that this antibody can cross the blood-brain barrier. So first, could you describe the role beta secretase plays in Alzheimer's disease? Right. So this is one of the big debates in the Alzheimer's field. I'll, I'll talk about this, in fact, extensively at my, my, my seminar there at Stanford. It's really is amyloid a driver, and amyloid in particular, beta amyloid, which is produced by the sequential cleavage of it's APP cleaved by beta secretase and then gamma secretase that gives rise to these short peptides, anywhere from 40 to 42 amino acids. There are also shorter forms, but it's thought that those are the two sort of toxic forms. And the field, you know, it's interesting to look at how this field developed. So beta amyloid was first discovered in the late 1980s through biochemical means, but right, you know, once it was sequenced, um, there were human genetics identified uh, mutations in amyloid precursor protein, which actually mapped to this peptide. In fact, I think the, one of the first mutations was a Dutch mutation that resulted in accumulation of amyloid on, on blood vessels. And so there was instantly a biochemical and genetic link. And, and I think we keep forgetting about how powerful those genetic links are. And since then, 
there have been a number of mutations discovered in, in APP, and I guess we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the concept is that beta secretase is required as the first protease to cleave APP. And if you look back evolutionarily, when did APP and beta secretase arise? They actually, actually beta secretase arise millions of years, you know, hundreds of millions of years before APP. And my speculation, I think the Phil in general may agree with this, is that APP is in fact sort of an accidental um, substrate for beta secretase. Both the beta secretase knockout mice and the APP knockout mice don't appear to phenocopy in very many, I mean, very many of the phenotypes. They're, all, they're both uh, uh, viable. But the beta secretase knockout mice have a, a, a large number of phenotypes that you don't see in the APP knockout. So I think there are many other substrates that beta secretase cleaves. And, you know, for the for a time, you know, the field had beta secretase itself was discovered in the late 1990s. So A-beta in the late 1980s, and then in 1999, beta secretase was discovered. And there have been huge efforts to make small molecule inhibitors to beta secretase, which have which failed for many years until recently. The last five years, there's more success in, in that area. But we, we decided to take a very different approach, which is making antibodies um, to beta secretase. And part of the reason to do that is because we make antibodies really well at Genentech. And mm -hmm. that's part of the, you know, what the history of our uh, sort of the drug development approach here. But also we could make really selective inhibitors of beta secretase and and that the problem was we made these antibodies and then they basically fell to get in the brain in concentrations that are high enough to reduce beta secretase activity unless you dose at really high levels. So what what did you uncover about the blood-brain barrier that allowed you to develop this antibody that can more readily cross it? I think this is probably the area of biology and the questions that are most compelling to me right now and to my lab is how does the blood-brain barrier develop? Um, had a postdoctoral fellow, Stephen Tam, who was also a graduate student at, at Stanford. He, he worked on the development of the blood-brain barrier in my lab and now is running his own lab uh, at Prothena. Um, how does the blood-brain barrier um, function, how does it transport molecules, and how does it break down in disease. And so now, majority of our efforts are really trying to find ways to get mo molecules across the blood-brain barrier. Now, obviously, the blood-brain barrier is there for a reason, and so I don't like any approaches that rely on disrupting the barrier. I mean, sure. It's essential, probably, for maintaining homeostasis in the CNS. So we took advantage of uh, endogenous transport mechanisms, and in particular, the transferrin-transferrin receptor approach, which again has been worked on for uh, for 20 years, but not really making advances as it relates to real drug development. And we discovered why very quickly. We, had, we made antibodies to transferrin receptor, and these antibodies all got trapped in the blood vessels. And this is what other labs had reported. And so we could have just decided that we would be done, but we had the idea of reducing the affinity of the antibody to transparent receptor. So in the one case, we have high affinity to beta secretase because we want to block its activity. But in this case, we took a transparent receptor antibody and we reduced its affinity. We made a bunch of variants just by introducing single alanine substitutions into the binding regions. And we saw that as we reduced affinity, we improved brain uptake. And I think the major point then combining the two, and this is sort of representative of my lab's interests, you know, combining the base antibody uh, in Alzheimer's disease with the transferrin receptor antibody, we made a bispecific antibody, um, which then one arm can utilize the transferrin receptor system at 
low to mo you know, moderate to low affinity, and the other arm can block beta secretase at high affinity. And that was sort of the golden you know mix, and that's that's been a big part of our lab. And I'll, I'll be presenting a bunch of uh, unpublished data on this platform and proof that it can work in primates. So the idea is that it just sort of going to latch onto the receptor long enough for it to cross the barrier and then let go and go on its merry way. And that's exactly right. I mean, that's the simplistic view of it. But when you think about the cell biology, what really has to happen is that transparent receptor has to be endocytosed, and then the antibody in some way needs to be transcytosed. And and we just published a paper a, a couple months ago in Journal of Experimental Medicine that looks at the cell biological mechanisms mm -hmm. of this transcytosis. And in particular, what we show is that if the antibody remains bound, it will drive the receptor to degradation, which breaks down this molecular lift. Uh, and it's that was very interesting insight. And so now we're just, we can optimize the binding so that you don't disrupt the lift itself. And I, I still think that there are some important cell biological questions that need to be addressed of how this thing gets across the endothelial cells. But the beauty of using beta secretase is that we can now measure the activity of the antibody in brain by looking at A-beta levels. Remember, this enzyme is required for the first cleavage of, of APP, giving rise to these peptides. So we can correlate drug levels in brain with activity of the bispecific antibody. And that, that is a major, major breakthrough for us having worked on other antibodies. For example, antibodies that directly bind to A-beta, it's much harder to make that correlation with activities. Here we can look at A-beta levels go down and relate that to drug levels, and then the A-beta levels go back up as the drug gets cleared from the brain. And we can prove that the antibody is actually crossing the endothelial barrier and blocking uh, APP cleavage in neurons. And so again, that was sort of the importance of combining the two programs, studying the blood-brain barrier transport with beta secretase. So this is, if I'm not mistaken, a, a, a very general problem with antibody therapy to the brain. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a major problem and it's, there are really, besides antibodies that are approved for MS, but those are actually targeting, you know, trafficking of cells across the blood-brain barrier. So the target of those are on the vascular sort of blood, the blood side of the blood-brain barrier. There are no um, drugs approved for uh, CNS indications that target neurons, astrocytes, or microglia that use the specificity of large molecules. And I think you, what you're saying and what, you know, or what you're implying is what we, the reason why we really address this question is that using this platform, we can now go after a wide range of targets in the, in the central nervous system. So any, any extracellular receptor ligand interaction, GPCR, ion channel that you want to modulate, if you have an antibody that modulates those molecules, we would tag it to the transferrin receptor arm of the bispecific antibody. And I think that's, that's really the vision of the platform. And that, that's what makes me probably most excited I would just love to see this applied to many different therapeutic targets uh, and many different thera you know, um, therapeutic areas. So we're working on Alzheimer's, but of course Parkinson's. And we have about six or, or so programs with different targets that we're going to use the transfer receptor uh, platform that you know, is, again, ALS and uh, Parkinson's disease. But you can imagine any neurological disease where the site of action is in the central nervous system. 
Yeah, so for example, Herceptin, Genentech's first blockbuster drug, works really well for HER2 positive cancer, but actually one of the main problems now is that you, you get brain metastases and Herceptin doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier. Yeah, you, you definitely hit the nail on the head. There are some nuances of the platform that make it not particularly useful for Herceptin per se, and the, those nuances come down to the valency of the antibody and also effector function. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about effector function when I'm there at Stanford, but it seems to instantly bore um, <laughs> my academic colleagues because it's hardcore antibody uh, engineering. But I think it's important to be aware of what are the limitations. So that being said, we're still, we are thinking of ways to engineer around that for Herceptin and also Avastin, which has, which is an anti-VEGF antibody that's been approved for GBMs which is probably one of its primary mechanisms is repairing the barrier, but then you have limited uptake of your anti-VEGF antibody once you've repaired the barrier in glioblastoma. So we, we definitely are thinking of the oncology side, but more importantly, we're trying to make it a very safe and benign platform for chronic dosing and chronic diseases. So as you mentioned before, amyloid plaques observed in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease are caused by the cleavage of the APP protein. Uh, and to date, there are about 30 unique coding mutations in human APP that have been described in literature, 25 of whom have been linked to the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease. And in 2012, your lab, in collaboration with Kari Stephenson's lab at Decode Genetics, found a mutation in APP that protects against Alzheimer's disease. So how do you imagine this protective mutation is working? So basically of those 25 mutations, um, all of them are causing, you know, some form of early onset Alzheimer's disease. I think maybe one or two may be linked to later onset. Uh, what was missing is sort of the, the, the other genetic bookend, which were mutations that protect from disease. But you can imagine in order to find mutations that protect, you need huge populations because you're really looking for people that carry uh, you know, are enriched in a certain variant that don't get Alzheimer's disease. Um, and so the way that we decided to go about this, and I think this is really the origin of this discovery, which isn't obvious, and I'll, again, I'll talk about this as well, but I think it's it's fun to, to recap it here. Um, there is the, the most common genetic risk factor in Alzheimer's disease is APOE4, Epsilon4, which is um, one of three phases flavors of apolipoprotein E. It comes in either 2, 3, and 4. And it's interesting because APOE4, um, if you carry one allele, you have greater than threefold risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. If you carry two, if you're homozygous, it's like 12 to 14 fold hmm. increased risk. Um, and on the other end, APOE2 is, is protective. And so what we decided to do is to find individuals that were APOE4 carriers. So they're either E3, E4, or E4, E4 that were greater than 80 years old that don't have Alzheimer's disease. And the idea, you know, going back to sort of the Drosophila genetic modifier screens or yeast genetic modifier screens is that there are mutations that arise by chance in the human population that will reduce the risk of Alzheimer's disease in the context of being an E4 carrier. So we did whole genome sequencing on 400 individuals that were what we call super controls. They have the E4 allele, so there's, they have a much higher risk and they don't have it. And then we also did the sort of opposite. We took E4 carriers that were younger than 65 that have accelerated disease. And we did whole genome sequencing looking for genes that would work in cooperation with E4 to accelerate uh, disease onset. 
And so we've actually just started, and this is the other half of the lab, but we're doing a lot of work on the, ge the genes that we have found in this modifier screen and also larger genetic studies in collaboration with you know, the Alzheimer's disease consortiums and with uh, Washington University. And our original collaboration was with DECODE. And so with DECODE, we, you know, we basically did whole genome sequencing on 75 individuals in, in either a category and found a mutation in APP that was in this protective cohort. And then Kari Stephenson and colleagues went back and looked across the entire population because now they have, you know, 10,000 uh, whole genomes or, or at least, you know, SNP chip on 10,000 and then they can impute 40,000 and basically found that if you carry this particular mutation, A673T, that it will provide substantial protection from Alzheimer's disease, regardless of if you're an E4 carrier or not. And I'll talk a little bit about how that genetics pans out. And uh, we've done a bunch more biochemistry, all of which is unpublished. And I'll talk about the biochemistry, both around APP cleavage, but also the propensity of the peptides with these variants to aggregate. And, and looking at how does this threonine substitute, substitution at position 673 alter um, both the production and the aggregation of, of A-beta. But, you know, from a global perspective, what does that really mean about the amyloid hypothesis? And I think it's what it means is that it provides now the genetic bookend that if you reduce amyloid, you essentially provide protection from Alzheimer's disease. And this is huge for us because, you know, we want to go in as drug developers with an unbiased approach and we'll take, you know, we are taking multiple approaches. We're not just interested in amyloid, we're interested in tau, we're interested in neuroinflammation. But here, now you have genetic evidence that reducing amyloid cleavage or reducing amyloid, in this case, the actual mutation reduces beta secretase cleavage, can provide protection. Now the question is, how much do you need to reduce it and when do you need to start reducing it? Obviously, these individuals will have less APP cleavage from conception, right? right? So you don't understand necessarily timing. And, and so for us, and actually for the field, it's really big insight and I think confirmation that going after beta secretase, reducing amyloid levels, reducing APP cleavage is, is the right approach. And it's kind of interesting because that was published about a month or two before several anti-amyloid therapies announced, you know, failed phase three clinical trials. Mm. And so the question is, why did those fail? But you have the genetics and and uh, I think that's worth, uh, you know, another discussion. Well, finally, you've alluded that we've already spoken about what you plan to talk about, but could you give us a, a, a broader overview of what you plan to talk in your lecture at Stanford? I looked at all the list of, you know, seminar speakers, and it's an amazing list. I'm very happy to be able to come, you know, present our work. And so I thought, you know, what's probably different that I'll talk about, um, and maybe you've heard from others, is really the drug development for Alzheimer's disease. And from really the initial hypothesis which relies on you know human genetics to the biochemical characterization to being convinced in the targets they're going after. How do you solve this problem with the blood-brain barrier? How do you then get drugs into the brain? And then ultimately, what type of trials do you run and what are you looking for? And I, I won't get into much detail about the clinical trials that we have ongoing now, but we will, you know, maybe that will come up in discussion. But basically the whole process, what you will note is that we do a lot of, let's just call it hardcore biochemistry and cell biology. And so I'm planning to present as much unpublished data as I can. Um, and I think the biggest sort of uh, progress that we've made over the last year, uh, which we're preparing for publication now, and hopefully we'll submit soon, is that this blood brain barrier platform is not just 
you know, applicable to mice, but actually can work in non-human primates and basically moving towards the clinic with this platform. And this is a big transition for the field who, you know, again, 20 plus years of, of mouse work on transparent receptor, but really no evidence that this thing is broadly applicable in, in primates. And I, uh, so I'll try to spend some time on that and the molecules that we've engineered and the relationship between affinity and brain uptake, which I think is just an interesting sort of intellectual exercise when you think about, you know, the antibody binding and its kinetics and how it should transport across the cell. And so I'm, I'm really excited to share a fair amount of unpublished data. I also would love to share some of the genetic hits, but, you know, it, to be consistent with the theme, we'll focus primarily on beta secretase and APP. Okay, great. Uh, and in closing, we like to ask a series of more rapid fire questions. So if you could go back in time and speak to yourself as a graduate student, what advice would you give yourself specifically? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, just keep being really passionate. I don't think that's ever changed for me. And, uh, and I had a, such a great time at Stanford. Maybe I would slow down a little bit. I mean, things went pretty fast at Stanford and I loved it there. Um, but that's not really my style. So I, I can't really <laughs> tell myself to slow down. <laughs> well, that, that leads um, quite awkwardly into our second question, which is, uh, what is your favorite way to relax while you were a graduate student here at Stanford? Yeah. It sounds like you didn't. <laughs> Oh, I, I would go up, I don't know if they still call it the treehouse or what, I don't know what the, you know, we would, uh, we would go out and I would have lunch every day up at the treehouse with another graduate student friend of mine and spend a little bit of time longboarding on campus there. Mm. But I also found every opportunity I could to uh, fly back to Utah to go skiing. Mm, yeah, important. Do you have a favorite uh, Lee Chen story uh, that you like to, like to tell? Oh, I, I better be very careful here. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> So Lee Chin and I, we, you know, the first time we presented our axon degeneration data at Keystone Symposium, we went skiing together one, one day. And I, I told this actually at my thesis defense, but we get up to the very top of Arapaho Basin just above Keystone and it's complete wide out. You can't see anything. And I started to get very nervous for Lee Chin and he took one or two turns and turned backwards and went down the hill. I don't know, maybe like 20 yards backwards, hit a mogul and completely. <laughs> Oh. basically just completely crashed and unfortunately he hurt his back but he's a great athlete so he, he recovered quickly but I saw my entire sort of graduate school and future <laughs> my eyes as my guy is dying and this is not an easy place to ski and, and luckily he's uh, not only did he survive but he's done amazingly well so yeah yeah um, if you could have any other job other than being a scientist what would you uh, choose probably a rancher oh what would you ranch? Probably cattle, but that's from family, you know, sort of maybe family history. My my grandfather was a rancher in, in Wyoming, so uh -huh. that would probably be the other career, maybe someday. Yeah, I love science so much, it's hard to imagine to do anything else but what we do. So Yeah. Well, thanks for speaking with us today, Dr. Watts. It was really great chatting with you, and I look forward to meeting you in person. Indeed. And thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. This episode was produced by Erica Senior, Mark Padalina, and myself. For more information about Neurotalk and Neurite West, please visit our website at www.neuritewest.org.